0: Hi, and welcome back to the IQT podcast. I'm Kevin O'Connell, a member of the technical staff on Bnext, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Dylan George and Dan Hanfling. For the past several weeks, my colleagues and I have been breaking down the COVID-19 outbreak and the role of technology in defeating the pandemic, everything from testing to contact tracing to data analysis and visualization. And it seems we've been reaching an audience and our listeners have been collecting and sending us questions. And so this seemed like a good time in the progress of the outbreak and our podcast to answer some listener questions.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to say a few words about how we received the listener feedback to our podcast. When we first started doing the podcast, I was pretty convinced that it was my, my sister and maybe Kevin's wife were the only people that were actually listening to the podcast. But we got a set of questions from my sister. And, and, and I have to say, my sister is absolutely wonderful. She, she's been listening and learning and thinking about how to help out during COVID-19. And uh, first off, she's doing a great job. She's, she's doing a great job keeping her family safe because she's staying at home, she's keeping her family home and keeping them healthy. Staying home helps even though it might not seem like it does. Uh, keeping yourself and your family healthy is a big benefit, not only to you, but also to the community because it keeps our healthcare system, you know, from going on under and being overwhelmed. And, and anyway, seeing the mass of information out there, the scientific language and even misinformation being generated, she decided to do something. She started asking her friends what questions they had about COVID-19 and to see if they had, they, if, if she could get them answers and help them out in any way. First off, you know, I love my sister. She's wonderful. And, 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 and she and her husband are, you know, really great examples of, of, of what it takes to, to raise kids and they're dedicated and loving. And so I'm, I'm clearly biased and, and, you know, and I'm really proud of her. But so we're, she's set us up with a handful of questions from some of her friends. And we're here today to try to help out as best we can. Unfortunately, we can't answer all the questions we received, but we're going to try to get to as many as we possibly can. And hopefully this, this helps out. Why don't we start off?
2: Hey, guys, before we get started, I, I should just say, I haven't even thought about having my wife listen to this podcast, so <laughs> thanks for the great idea.
0: <laughs> well, great. We'll, we'll, we can, we'll boost our download number by, uh, by one more.
1: Yay! <laughs> you don't have to listen. You just have to download people. Come on. That's it. <laughs> there you
0: go. So let's see. Our, uh, our, uh, our questioner, Stephanie, writes... I've been wondering about getting the antibody test. There have been conflicting reports about whether or not you develop some immunity to the virus if you've had it. Is the antibody test worth trying to get? Well, you know, the, there's been a great deal of, uh, of talk about the antibody test in relation to whether or not the results of such a test let you know if, you've been in, if you are immune. If you're immune, can you go back to work? If, you, if you've built up an antibody response to the virus, Are you then no longer or not going to be able to transmit the virus to others? And these are all really important questions. The problem is that it's unclear whether an antibody test actually answers any of them at the moment. And part of this is because we we still have a limited understanding of the biology of the virus and the biology of our immune response to it. And partly because uh, there's a very wide variability in the quality uh, of the tests that are being developed. So first of all, we currently don't know whether the presence of an antibody actually provides immunity to the virus. And we don't know if, you, if in fact you do get that immunity, how long that will, how long that will last. The, the presence of antibodies in response to viral diseases, you frequently develop a, an antibody response, but it varies from disease to disease, from virus to virus. What the significance of that antibody response is so uh, on, on the one hand, if you have uh, an immune response to the measles, you typically, if you catch the measles or you get a, a vaccine to it, you typically uh, receive lifelong immunity to, to measles after that time. However, on the other hand, if you either have the flu or you get a flu vaccine, the immunity to the flu, even that same strain, can wane over time. And there are some viral diseases for which there is no vaccine at the moment, uh, and that's a that's a whole other branch of biology we won't go into today. So the, the, the again, the, the message here is that we just don't know. More research needs to be done to determine how long-lasting immunity to this coronavirus infection could be. Uh, and of course, we've only had this disease around uh, for the last three or four months, uh, for five months since late last year. So we really won't know for a while. We really need to continue to learn more. And the people developing the tests need more time to refine them. So let's move on to the next question. Here's one for Dan. And uh, Katie writes, what changes would he recommend to hospitals to reduce the spreading of the coronavirus? I imagine they would be the same things that he would advocate to stop the spread of every hospital acquired infection. But maybe there's something different for this one. I think we have a big lack of treatment data reporting. So Dan, what do you think?
2: All right. Well, great. Thanks, Katie and Kevin, for uh, channeling Katie. Excellent question. And uh, I will put my clinician hat on. I'm a practicing emergency physician, after all. So I've been in and around the virus in the hospital setting. And first thing I would say is, you know, this is an, an incredibly transmissible virus. It is very easy to spread. And that is why uh, we're seeing such um, concerning uh, presence, evidence, if you will, of clusters of patients who are coming in, particularly those who are susceptible and vulnerable. For example, when we see it spread in nursing homes or within household contacts. So uh, I think, uh, Katie, you're on to the fact that, you know, hospital-acquired infections have an entire protocol that are applied that is really based on uh, the fundamentals of uh, infection control and prevention. And, and this is where preparedness really matters most, where you know what supplies, what equipment, and what training is required to be able to affect those uh, principles and practices uh, most efficiently. I think one of the challenges has been, um, as Kevin said in response to the last question, this is a new virus. And so for many, even in the hospital setting, it is not uh, usual that they encounter Uh, highly transmissible, highly virulent pathogens uh, and patients who can transmit those or who may be harboring them. And so it is somewhat unusual for the entirety of the healthcare workforce to have to engage in the use of personal protective equipment with masks and gowns and gloves and the processes for correctly putting them on and taking them off. And I think that this is where training uh, in particular, uh, is most important. and I think we're getting better as we mm-hmm. go along, but that uh, continues to be an area that needs a lot of attention. and I, and And Katie, you make the point that you think we have a lack of treatment uh, data reporting, and i think I think you're right. We are seeing a lot of different ideas, and we're we're hearing a lot of different recommendations. And so this really speaks to the importance. Of having some kind of unified you know, data reporting and you know, data, data reporting system and the means for analyzing the data within that uh, system to be able to share best practices. And so I'll conclude by saying that one, one effort that uh, we did have a hand in helping to support uh, early on in the outbreak was the promotion of a telementoring platform uh, that is run out of the University of New Mexico. It goes by the name of Project Echo. And uh, actually, week in and week out, there are two, sometimes three, uh, sessions uh, devoted to critical care and emergency department care. Last week, there was a special session on nursing home care. And so at the end of the day, given that we are still learning about this this disease as it continues to, to ravage our communities, uh, best practices and sharing of those best practices is really what we have to count on in order to address some of the concerns that you raised. Thanks for the question.
1: You know, Dan, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is as you were answering that question as well Is um, I was talking with a colleague of mine the other day and saying, as bad as COVID-19 is right now, it's not the worst case scenario. You know, my colleague stopped dead and said, this is terror, it's really bad. What do you mean that, what's, what would be the worst case scenario? And, you know, I, I pointed out to him, it's like, okay, well, we have the essential workers you know, our uh, healthcare workers, people that are working in groceries, people that are working in the transit industry, helping people get to where they need to go, uh, people that are picking up our garbage, uh, people that are helping get our electricity to our houses, all those people are taking the sacrifice for themselves and the risk to themselves to go and do their job. I mean, the worst case scenario to me would be those situations where those essential workers, I mean, primarily those healthcare workers like you, didn't go. And do their job, or the worst case is where they would get in, infected, sick, uh, and die, and we would lose that capacity. And so, first off, you know, thank you for what you do, because I know that that's a, a hard thing to do to go into those situations. And thank goodness we have people like you. But that is really, I mean, thinking about hospital acquired infections, you know, that really is a frightening thing to think about how it could devastate our health our, our healthcare. Uh, Infrastructure and the people that are, are doing what they're doing as frontline workers to, to keep us safe. Uh, and so I think this is a critical situation of what it would really tip us into a worst case scenario versus where we are, where it's a COVID's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's a scary disease and it scares me, but it could be a lot worse if, if it devastated and scared people to not come to work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate the recognition, but I, I think, you know, to your point and to the point that Katie brought up in the question is, you know, how, do, how can, what recommendations can we make to reduce the spread of this virus? And I think, you know, it's going to take uh, everyone's participation, uh, as you stated at the beginning, staying home when you can stay home or adopting safe practices when you are in those frontline positions uh, to, to, to protect both yourself, your family, and those around you. Uh, in your community. So.
0: Wow. The next question uh, from Heidi is a short question, but the implications are really, uh, really tremendous. What are there or aren't there to support whether this virus will be seasonal like the flu? Yeah, please, Dylan, jump right in.
1: Yeah, this is a this is a really tricky one. And as we pointed out in both of the preceding questions. This virus has only been around for a handful of months in the human population. We just don't know a lot about it right now. And so we're learning on a day-by-day, day, on a week-by-week week basis. Our colleague Mark Lipsitch, who is a you know world-renowned epidemiologist at Harvard, He wrote a wonderful piece on the potential of seasonality of COVID-19, and we can put the information of of where he was writing that into the podcast uh, notes later on. But in the piece, Mark really talks about four main factors that influence seasonality in pathogens. And those four factors are environmental factors, human behavior, host immune system, and then last but not least, the status of of, of susceptibles. And so to take the first one, environmental factors, there's been some good research showing that absolute humidity is correlated more with transmission. Uh, And so some experimental work has shown that that the drier it is, the more transmission that happens between people for respiratory pathogens. But even with that kind of information, it should be noted that transmissibility does happen in humid areas. In countries that have high humidity, they do still see the flu, they do still see respiratory pathogens being distributed about. And, and as well, we do see transmission of flu throughout the year. It's just not as high in the summer months as it is in the winter months. And so that's not to say that it's the, the only driver. So, so environmental factors, particularly absolute humidity is, is, is a factor. Human behavior can influence seasonality as well. I mean, we all in the United States, in, in the temperate zone of the United States, we all know where we spend time in the winter versus in in the in the summer most of us are either in school or at work or whatnot in the winter months and so we're inside with quality of the ventilation and the size of the rooms that we spend time in really matters in particular you know it's like in the winter who wants to be out in the cold it's uh, the older i get the less use i have for for snow and cold and so i definitely like being inside but we do see patterns of infections, particularly measles, flu, chickenpox, that are strongly correlated with uh, school terms. And so you have higher infection rates when kids are in school versus when they're not. And this is actually a well known pattern in the military as well. When you bring in recruits and bring them all together from various parts of the United States, you see a spike in respiratory infections, adenoviruses, and, and, and various other influenza sorts of things. And so, you know, for COVID nineteen, there there is a little bit of discrepancy here, though, too, because we know that kids get infected. We've seen this from the data from China, from Italy, and even now here from the United States. But we don't have that good of an understanding of how well kids transmit the infection, and um, or spread it themselves. I mean, for flu, it's well known. That kids are just major vectors of spread. They're little, like little petri dishes that are running around with their little jam hands, spreading flu everywhere. It's uh, it's what makes them adorable. you just got to <laughs> love them. <laughs> but we need, uh, but so, but we do need to learn more about COVID 19 transmission and the role that kids play uh, to have a better assessment of whether or not schools are, are a function. But human behavior, and so how we come together, where we spend our time, are we, in close contact with one another, or are we outside where respiratory pathogen uh, transmission is not going to be as big of a concept uh, going forward? So, environmental factors, human behavior, now host immune system. There is some evidence that you know, I mean, we generate vitamin D when we're exposed to ultra ultraviolet light, and so when we're outside and we're in in the sunlight, we actually generate some vitamin D, and it stimulates vitamin D development, and and uh, and so when we're outside in the summer, we actually Get more of it, and it actually stimulates. There's some evidence that it does a good job of stimulating our immune system, uh, and so while that undoubtedly is a factor, it's probably a smaller factor. But you know that's that's something to think about as well. And then and then the the, the last one is this idea of how many susceptibles are there in the population now? So for COVID-19, we know that the human population is, is immune because this is a newly emerged infectious disease. So we know that there's no pre-existing immunity, or at least that's the assumptions that we're making uh, for this particular virus. And so as we see infectious disease epidemics rise, that means there'll be fewer and fewer susceptibles in the population, and so and then once we hit this level what's referred to as herd immunity, that's the proportion of the population that is largely infected or is, has been infected and is immune and no longer can actually carry on the chains of transmission and so you you see the sputtering out of what's happening going forward in the in the outbreak so this this happens this can happen seasonally if there's any seasonally forcing function you will see that amplified because of this change in susceptibles through time. And so that will reinforce some of that seasonality. So just as a kind of interesting side note here though too, in animal populations, humans, we reproduce all the time. We're just constantly reproducing. Whereas many animal species, they reproduce just once once in a season. So it's a, in the springtime, you see a lot of newborns in wildlife populations. And so this, this, this pulse of newborns allows for um, a whole new uh, segment of of wildlife populations to be susceptible. And that drives a lot of seasonality in um, wildlife diseases because they have seasonality of births, seasonality of susceptibles, and then therefore seasonality of, of disease following after the susceptibles and chasing them and driving them in. So those are the four kind of main reasons of why you would see seasonality in COVID, whether it be, you know, the depletion of susceptibles, the host immune system, the human behavior of how we generate contacts, and then these environmental factors. Now, but, but we just don't know what the main effect uh, is. Go- any of those are going to have on COVID yet, and I think the consensus right now is that we need to watch and wait, uh, and that it's probably going to have an effect. To what degree the effect is going to be, we don't know, and there's significant discussion right now about the second wave uh coming in fall and lots of concerns about that.
0: So uh, I wanna Dylan, that was terrific. I think we should probably say that none of our comments here today are intended to advocate vitamin D, whether obtained <laughs> from sunlight or or supplements, as a uh as a preventative measure. Yeah. You know, I think it is well established that uh Overexposure to UV and sunlight you know, is a, uh, a cause of skin cancer, so please be very careful uh, yes. <laughs> with that. And the idea that one might rely upon uh, the development of herd immunity as a, uh, as a response strategy is probably also risky on a population scale as well.
1: Yeah, there's been, there's been a lot of discussion about, I've, I've seen some reports of people trying to actually get infected and trying to do these things or concern about that um, situation is that we don't have good therapy. All we have right now is supportive care. And and as Dan was talking about Project Echo and that sort of thing, we're getting much better at understanding how to treat individuals and, and provide that supportive care because we're understanding the disease better and, and how it's creating pathologies in the individuals. And um, and so that's great. That's wonderful. But because we don't have a clear understanding of how to treat and we don't have therapies in terms of drugs or vaccines, it's it seems to me, it seems a bit reckless and dangerous to go that route. I mean, the, the preferred way of attaining herd immunity is through a vaccine. The vaccine right. is the long-term solution. And that's why so many companies are pushing so hard to actually come up with something uh, that could be um, helpful to us to attain that herd immunity. That's the safe way to do it. That's the responsible way to do it. And that's the way that I would advocate.
2: So so, so actually, so a comment and a question. And the comment is, I, I've seen some of those kind of COVID party ideas as well. And to me, that sounds like Russian roulette. Uh, <laughs> awfully, a- awfully dangerous because, uh, you know, as we know, the vast majority of folks who are exposed will have a uh you know from any anywhere from asymptomatic to a mild to moderate course uh, some of that may be a little bit rougher than others but for about 20 percent of the population they can get very sick and we don't know all of the host factors that might predispose one to having a rougher course than others related question though that has captured some attention although not a lot vis-a-vis vaccines is the notion of challenge studies uh, this idea that we would take a voluntary group of folks who would be willing to take the vaccine, and would then be willing to be exposed to the virus. Thoughts about the ethics or the practicality of those of those challenge studies, and what, why are they even coming up in discussion now?
0: Sure. Well, you know, from a, well, let's let's take let's take practicality and ethics separately. As a formal experimental practical m- matter. Yes, a, a challenge study is a very powerful way to get at the efficacy of a vaccine, that there's no doubt about that. And we do do that, not with humans, but typically often with animal studies, we will administer a vaccine and then later a challenge and look for uh, an impact on, on the course of the disease and, and, on, and on severity and things along those lines. At this moment, I'm not quite sure where to think about ethics. We we never do those kinds of experiments on human beings, at least it hasn't been a discussion in my professional lifetime, uh, about this up until, uh, some of these discussions that, that you've mentioned, Dan, Dylan, what do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I think that, um, I, I'm not an ethicist. And so, um, you know, state, state that out right out of the gate and then mm-hmm. it's not, it's not my field. And I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I do think that, um, the, there is a fundamental difference between doing cha- human challenge studies and doing, um, Uh, you know, COVID infection parties, because the fundamental difference is that people that would participate in human challenge studies would be closely monitored by a medical professionals to make sure that they could receive supportive care very quickly and Mm -hmm. very uh, efficiently. And they would be monitored for, you know, the period of time that you'd be in the incubation period. And I think the, the major idea behind human challenge studies is if if you could have a group of volunteers, and they would have to be true volunteers, not, you know, you know, pseudo volunteers, but true volunteers to come up with responses, would that mean that there'd be fewer people that would be subjected to the, the vaccine challenge that, or the vaccine clinical trial going forward? Mm-hmm. You'd get answers faster. Mm-hmm. You'd have fewer people involved in the clinical trial. And therefore, less subjected to, you know, adverse effects of the vaccine and that sort of thing. Again, it's mm-hmm. like balancing the pros and cons and the ethics of all of that uh, is, is a little bit beyond me. It's not my uh, expertise, but at least on the surface, it's something to consider in terms of whether or not it should, could crash the schedule. I know our right. colleague, uh, one of our colleagues is, is strongly opposed to it. And um, mm-hmm. so I think it is a topic that divides or is, is an area of active debate. Uh, uh, within the medical profession right now, right. I, I agree. What did you think, Dan? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, thanks for uh, for for both of those answers. I, I mean, I, I also find it to be of concern, as Kevin said. We're not we're not used to doing this in the human population. These challenge studies are usually conducted in uh, non-human primates or even in in other animal species, and only after careful consideration are uh, vaccines. You know. Provided to a human population, and mostly uh, with the intent to look at uh, safety and uh, evidence of side effects, and so on, tolerance, if you will, of the of the administration. So, I, I find this to be, it, it, you know, a concerning uh, topic. And the reason that it, it sort of triggered uh, in my mind was the notion of again, you know, sort of let let's. Let's all go to a COVID party, get sick, and get it done with. You know, I, I think that I, I think that we'd have to, to to give very careful consideration to intentionally exposing folks, much the same way that we we don't think the COVID party is such a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced that a challenge study is is all that good idea either. I
0: agree, and certainly the the size of the population that's being exposed now is certainly. You know, there was a concern during the Ebola outbreak that that the epidemic might be over before there was a chance to have enough people vaccinated to actually conduct a, a usable clinical study uh, on the on the Ebola vaccine. I don't think we faced that uh, that situation here, unfortunately. Okay, so uh, let's see. Moving on to another question, Roy writes. Is there any way to know that getting a test guarantees that you have it or not? I've heard that some tests are unreliable. Are there any true facts? Well, I would say that the truest fact is that any test that you get won't guarantee that you, that you do not have the disease. I think that's a pretty safe, um, a pretty safe uh, ass- assertion. Um, <clears throat> a negative result on a test can occur for any number of reasons. Um, one you might have only been exposed yesterday and your body has not developed either an antibody response or had enough time to uh, let the virus multiply to the levels necessary to trigger some of the tests uh, we have heard that um, and we believe you know we we believe the uh, the news that uh, there have been um, some failures in the uh, in the way that which uh, people are being sampled um, uh, not everybody uh, who gets the swab up the nose necessarily has a sample that's collected um, that is, uh, well, I'll, I'll just say it this way, goopy enough uh, to carry uh, enough of the sample back to the laboratory. <clears throat> uh, and it's pretty unpleasant. And sometimes uh, people just don't make it all the way through the sampling process. So, so there's that. Uh, but I think what they're really getting at here is the nature of the test. <clears throat> and so all of these tests, whether it's uh, the, the RT-PCR test or the so-called molecular test for the presence of genes that, are of, that, that, uh, that belong to the virus, or the antibody tests that uh, tell you, uh, in retrospect, whether you've been exposed, uh, these tests uh, need a certain amount of either the virus or these antibodies to be present in the body. They have a, what we call a limit of detection. <clears throat> um, and uh down to the limit of detection in the laboratory some of these tests are in fact quite accurate but uh the way that the test behaves under pristine laboratory conditions is different uh than the way the test behaves in the real world and so um and so no you cannot say that there's a guarantee that you have it or not what um a responsible practitioner uses a test result in addition to uh, other clinical signs, the the patient's history, uh, their, the patient's medical history, the patient's social history. Are they have they recently been exposed to people that are known to carry COVID nineteen? Uh, as part of a uh, um, a collection of information that uh, that a practitioner uses to uh, to assess um, the likelihood of of a COVID uh, infection. Okay. Let's see. Um, So here, Wendy has a question for Dan. Um, Can I get it from mosquitoes? Those damn things love to bite me.
2: (laughs) All right, Wendy, I've got got a recommendation for you. Hit back. Uh, (laughs) All right. So so look, you know, mosquitoes are known to to, uh, transmit uh, a number of infectious diseases. In fact, uh, a number of of the most concerning infectious diseases with regards to the sort of global burden of disease, if you will, Uh, particularly when we think about Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, you know, talking about malaria, yellow fever, uh, dengue, chikungunya, uh, those are all mosquito-borne illnesses, infectious diseases. Uh, But I think it's safe to say at the present time that COVID-19 is probably not transmitted by, uh, by mosquitoes. Uh, of course, um, you know, uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And, uh, you know, those mosquitoes are probably looking to get in on the business. But my sense is that, um, what we know of the transmissibility of this particular virus is that it is really primarily either, uh, transmitted by a droplet. So from a cough or a sneeze. Uh, aerosol, if it actually stays suspended in the air for some period of time, or a fomite. Fomite is when those droplets uh, land on a particular uh, surface, uh, whether that be on a countertop or a bed railing or paper, what have you, uh, and then the next person comes along and touches those uh, droplets, uh, those particles, and then brings them up towards their mucous membranes, uh, rubbing their eyes, touching their uh, mouth or nose, uh, so those are really the the known and expected means of transmission uh, of this virus right now. So Wendy, hit back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and there's good evidence there. Oh, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Dylan. Uh, you no, know, um,
1: but as we talk about these like routes of transmission too, for that that would infect an individual, I think it's really useful to talk about routes of transmission um, within the population, you know, for Mm -hmm. example, you know, we need to have better understanding of how COVID is, uh, which groups are at more at risk. I mean, are we, is it really, if you find a case in the community, is it really the household that that person lives with more at risk than anybody else? Um, And do they transmit well in the community? Um, Or are there um, uh, particular uh, co-workers that would be more uh, at risk? You know, a recent study documented these transmission events, um, and the, they did find that that household members are at highest risk, which just is intuitive. It's the people you spend the most time with, and you're at the closest range. Um, and then also, you know, transmission after five days after symptom onset, you know, you really start to lose uh, transmissibility after that point. And the the, fr- the most frightening thing, and, and a lot of people have talked about this as well, is this pre-symptomatic or Transmitting before you actually have symptom onset, and then, and most people are talking about two days before you have symptom onset, is when you're starting to see actual uh, a lots of a high viral load and a lot of transmission and shedding going on, and um, it's it, you know those things are pretty concerning as well, um, and um, as we've talked about in past uh, podcasts, this idea of contact tracing or I, you know, trying to go into the community and chase down the virus and pull it out of our, our and create fire breaks around it so that it, it can't go any further in our communities. We also can think about contact tracing as a way to understand or get better data on these major uh, vectors or these major ways of transmission within the population. And that will help us target um, where we need to focus infection control and um, isolation of individuals in a more effective way. And so we don't use this blunt instrument of population-wide physical distancing uh, going forward, but we can try to be much, much more targeted uh, going forward. Absolutely. Okay, uh, here's one for Dylan. It's a long
0: one. Um, So Jenny writes, uh, so many write down comments about this, uh, about how um, the coronavirus is not as infectious as the flu. It would be great if somebody could explain universal truths about viruses and how scientists determine the rate of infection, uh, how how the doubling of cases every few days can depend on the virus characteristics and the population density and so on. People just don't seem to get that trajectory and how predictable it is for viruses. So as a result, they have a hard time believing that the stay-at-home orders are even doing anything. And um, okay, well, yeah. that that's enough. Let me let me yeah, stop yeah. there. That's a, yeah, that's yeah, a big yeah, chunk right there.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, um, and I think that your your question really um, helps understand that you know there's there's no you know fundamental universal aspect of the pathogen. It's it's the combination of. The characteristics of the pathogen, the population that the pathogen is in, and how people are are moving about and actually interacting with one another. And then also, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, to some degree, the environmental characteristics of what, of where that population is as well. All three of those broadly influence pathogen spread. And, um, One one concept that we've talked about in other podcasts is about is how epidemiologists actually characterize spread. It's this the famed R naught or reproductive reproductive number, Um, and uh, what that is is an estimate of the average number of individuals that that um, become infected from an initial case in an immunologically naive population. So when you see a number of an R naught above one, you would expect spread to happen uh, unbridled if you see it below one that means it's starting to um sputter out within the population and hopefully will die out and so when we think about when epidemiologists think about this R not concept it's really three main components one is the probability that a susceptible individual will come in contact with an infectious individual that's that's the first concept the second concept is the probability given that contact of an actual transmission of the virus happening. And that's the second concept. And the third concept is the duration of infectiousness of an individual. And so you roll all three of those together in a mathematical uh, way, you can actually derive this R naught function or this R naught estimate of this parameter estimate. And so that um, contact in that definition and in those components is critical. And so when we change behavior like physical distancing, that means we're changing the capacity of the disease to spread within the population and how much it impacts. You know, initially, when we saw what was happening in China and Italy and Spain and other places, the initial estimates of this r naught was anywhere between 1.5 and 3.5, meaning anywhere from one to four individuals were being infected from, from somebody that got covid and so you can see how fast, if you uh, that would that would pile up going forward. Now, if we contrast that with seasonal flu, seasonal flu has a R naught of one to two, so there is a significant overlap there. But <clears throat> definitely, there was uh, um, uh, COVID nineteen was spreading much more quickly than what we would see in seasonal flu, and 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 it should, as as I mentioned at the top, it's uh you know these estimates definitely depend on on context, rather, and will change through time as new data and interventions are put into place. And so one of the things that's been very exciting, and you can see this in the data in New York State and in Washington State, they've actually been estimating R-naught every week and to see what is happening with the dynamics. And you can see a downward trend through time, which is exceptionally exciting and exceptionally encouraging, what that means to me is that social distancing is working. We've spaced ourselves out more means that it can't, the, the disease can't spread as much or the pathogen can't spread as much. Um, and, and now it's bouncing around in that kind of one-ish area or that like lower than one in some places and about one in others. And um, that's, that's the encouraging thing. So we do have some evidence that would demonst- that is correlated with the physical distancing and with the, the decrease in, in, in spread. So Dylan, just to just to further footstomp uh, your uh, your three
0: factors for um, that go into R naught, the one that we have direct control over is that person to person contact factor. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, without a doubt. so yeah. Mm-hmm. In, actually, in, you
2: know, it, you know what I like, you know what I like thinking about. It's like, hey man, get spaced out. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Maybe we'll actually protect ourselves. <laughs>
1: Let's <laughs> just get spaced out man that's right uh-huh. now uh, just just to finish up on this one in this one in particular sure, though uh-huh. too it's like um you know um uh the other thing to point out though too is that um when we think about flu we're, we're thinking about not just one virus but we're thinking about many viruses there's many mm-hmm. different types of vi- flu viruses and they all have slightly different sorts of components to them and so um uh, it's definitely um, transmitting more than what we've seen in flu. And then also the case fatality rate is 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 it multiples or maybe an order of magnitude more than what we've seen in seasonal flu. And that's what's very concerning uh, going forward as well. Um, but um, uh, going back to your question of you know it's um, universal truths about it and how we understand uh, these these things going forward, and whether or not, um, social distancing is actually having an impact. And it's, it's hard for people to, I think, to also to fully appreciate that many times we have this mental model of what we're experiencing as a natural disaster. And uh, we, natural disasters are very quick events that happen and they're destruction that, that happens very quickly. And we move, into a, we move into a recovery phase fairly quickly as well. As we've talked about in past podcasts, these uh, pandemic is a slow moving event that is having impact over weeks and months. Um, and the uncertainty about what's happening is uh, really challenging. And it's uncertain as to know what's happening because and because many times you have to make decisions much earlier than what you actually can see in the data because you have exponential growth of cases and you have linear response capabilities, meaning you're going to be your response capabilities will be outstripped by the pressure of the outbreak coming forward. And and those components come together in very hard ways for people to feel that they're contributing, feel that something's happening, and and respond to it in a meaningful way.
0: <clears throat> so that's a great segue to uh, the next question uh, from Ginny. Um, and I'll hand this one over to Dan. Um, what are the best sources to check for new scientific info? Well, besides this podcast, of course. Oh, well, I mean, a book with goes well, on? That. <laughs> <Thank you>. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, now that the media uh, has gone down the farther road with political biases, uh, most things are not being written by scientists that you see out there. Hopefully, hopefully responsible reporters are actually sourcing uh, from credible scientific sources. Right. Um, but uh, uh, how do, you know, how does the ordinary uh, listener begin to, uh, you know, uh, sort the the wheat from the chaff?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Well, <clears throat> You know, there are a lot of talking heads on TV. Uh, so the ones you should pay attention to are the be next talking heads. Uh, Dr. George, yes. Dr. O'Connell, Dr. O'Cool, Dr. Borio, and myself. Uh, beyond, beyond our uh, cohort, uh, I think this is a great question. And, and even for experts like us, uh, and I think I can speak for uh, Kevin and Dylan on this, uh it's a real challenge uh sorting through lots and lots and lots of information if anything uh this has shown us uh, what a data explosion looks like and what an information explosion looks like and what a uh you know what a challenge it is to be able to uh to make sense of everything that is coming at us fast and furious so from the clinical perspective uh, I'll 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 start and then I'll turn it over to to, uh, to the guys to, to see uh, where you guys are looking for, for sources of information. But for for the clinical aspects of this, there are three uh, websites that I uh, have put up on my uh, on my bookmark bar, uh, you know, at the top of the top of the page, and uh, and I look at you know fairly regularly. The first is from uh, the National Institute of Health and they have a, a coronavirus diseases treatment guidelines. Uh, so for clinicians like myself, it is really a, um, a good place to start with regards to looking at what is, what, what is, what is acceptable, what is being trialed, what has uh, some data behind it, or what doesn't have data behind it, and therefore cannot be recommended as a strategy going forward. <clears throat> we won't talk about uh, any specific Uh, um, uh, uh, medications there, except maybe it was related to the question that Wendy asked earlier about mosquitoes. Never mind. Um, So that's the first place I go. The second place that I like to go is a place called the uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or IHI, uh, who uh, have put together a tremendous dashboard uh, on all things COVID-19 related, Uh, including linkages to a lot of the material that is now being made available outside of the paywall in some of the most prominent medical journals uh, across the globe, including New England Journal, JAMA, uh, The Lancet, uh, British Medical Journal, et cetera. Uh, So that's another place that that I like to go. Uh, And then the third uh, specific for the kind of work uh, that I'm doing in the emergency department uh, comes from uh, essentially a, a, a wiki uh, effort that was uh, homegrown, if you will. Uh, it started out of the uh, Harbor UCLA um, uh, Department of Emergency Medicine, and it's called WikiEM. Uh, and again, if you if you were interested in this, it would be wikiem.org. Uh, and that is also another uh, useful, clinically focused, uh, uh, you know, repository uh, of information. So. I think it's a great question. Um, I think one of the one of the lessons learned, if you will, going forward is we're going to have to figure out how do we what tools can we use, uh, including some tools that we that we look at from within our vantage point at IncuTel, What tools can we use to help us sort the wheat through the chaff and be able to um, allow AI or other web crawlers. Uh, to help us and guide us to the information that is most credible and most relevant for the questions that we 're asking, how about you guys what are you, what are you guys looking at um, so the uh, The world that
0: I live in is uh, uh, pretty nerdy, and a lot of the data that I look at are um, uh, fairly down in the uh, in the scientific weeds um, and so maybe a little uh, a little hard to, add, to access for for you know for the general reader. Um, I think a good overview of the status of the of the outbreak um, can be seen at the Johns Hopkins uh, Coronavirus uh, Dashboard website. Um, that site is uh, is uh, very rich in uh, data that they collect not only inside the United States but from around the world. Um, I also spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, the status of COVID testing. And uh, that's a bit of a wild west right now, um, but there are some websites that are collecting and collating data on tests that are being developed. Um, be very cautious when you read these websites about the claims for uh, the sensitivity and specificity of these, uh, um, of these tests. Uh, very, very few of them have been uh, tested extensively uh, even those that have received the uh, emergency use authorization from FDA have not been tested to the extent that we would in non-COVID situations. Um, Dylan, what have you been looking at? What, what are what are your one or two that uh, that you look at?
1: Yeah, no, there's there's a, actually there's a handful of people that I follow. I mean, I, I definitely agree with Dan, though. I mean, it's like my colleagues. Uh, I mean, here in BNEC, are absolutely world class and wonderful, and it's like we. I think uh, we take advantage of that a lot. I mean, uh, Tara O'Toole who leads our group is is phenomenal. I mean, Dan is just an amazing resource. Uh, Kevin, every time there's something about testing, it's like I always go and talk to him because he's just a wealth of knowledge Lou Borio understands medical countermeasure development and testing uh, better than any of of the rest of us in our group. She's just fantastic. Um, And Uh, you know, and then our other colleagues, uh, Joe and JJ, they're, they're phenomenal as well. They, they really help us get, have a better understanding of what's going on in, in these particular spaces. So it's valuable resources there without a doubt. Um, a couple other people I wanted to highlight though, too, that you can follow on Twitter. I mean, it's like Caitlin Rivers is just a phenomenal epidemiologist as uh, uh, Mark Lipsich, who I already mentioned. He's at Harvard. Caitlin Rivers is at Johns Hopkins university. Uh, Mark Lipsich is, is at, um, uh, um, Harvard. Um, another colleague that I follow almost religiously is Stephen Riley, who works at the Imperial College in the UK. He does some very uh, beautiful modeling, and some is is a voice that I I lean on and rely on uh, quite heavily going forward. Um, uh, the other person that uh, that I've loved recently, though, too, and I I've never met in person but it's somebody that works for the Financial Times, it's, a, it's, a, it's somebody by the name of John Byrne um, Murdoch, who's a visualization expert actually, and he's put out some beautiful visualizations of, of different aspects of, of COVID-19. And um, one, I just love the visualizations. They're, they're easy to interpret and they help me understand things very quickly, um, but they're just an example of how to communicate data more effectively um, and, and how to do that in a concise and Powerful way as well. So those are those are a couple other resources that I would highlight.
0: <clears throat> well, uh, I want to thank all of those who wrote, and I want to apologize to a few more of them. We haven't been able to cover all of their questions in the time available this uh, this week. Uh, there may be some time next week to follow up with uh, the uh, with some remaining questions. Um, please uh, keep them keep those cards and letters coming. Um, we uh, we love the feedback Uh, the questions are always a great jumping off point uh, for uh, for further discussion and so I want to thank again my colleagues Dylan George and Dan Hanfling uh, our producer Christine Zender and um, Matthew Billman who is our uh, our sound technician and uh, and co-producer today and also uh, Kerry Sassine uh, who is um, a uh, major force uh, within uh, i q t uh, for the uh, the publishing of this podcast so um Dan or uh, Dylan, do you have any uh, further uh, any last words you'd like to like to drop today
1: yeah, just a, I completely agree with you I really appreciate all the questions. It was really been helpful to think through uh, some of these uh, how to address some of these questions and mm-hmm. and and put them forward so thank you very much really appreciate it all right
2: yeah I'll just conclude by saying stay safe. Stay smart, stay healthy. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll uh we'll talk to
0: you all next time. Bye bye now.